Climate Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on Earth and came up with a hypothesis we wanted to test. If you believe in climate change, the only way we'll get past these massive environmental problems is if for profit companies get involved. In other words, we've spent hundreds of years getting into this mess. We'll need to spend billions, maybe trillions, getting out of it. Therefore, companies need to make money in order for someone to spend it. Then we asked, can we speak with a dozen or so companies in different verticals of climate tech who are making it part of their mission to be climate conscious and making big bucks while doing it? Well, we did just that. Thus, Climate Mayhem was born. So follow Jacob Kubica and I along as we listen to some incredible stories to test this hypothesis. Oh, and are you an entrepreneur about to get into this space? You will definitely learn something from these extremely impressive founders and operators of just how possible it is to take on a seemingly impossible task. Mayhem on, Jacob. Mayhem on, Ty. Michael Leggett and Chris Eugster are the co-founders of Evergreen, a company making investing in solar projects easier, faster, and more impactful. These guys are ridiculously smart and passionate, each bringing different strengths to the company. Chris with deep experience in the energy industry, and Michael was a product design lead at Facebook and Google both. Today, they're tackling the question, what if investing in solar energy projects was as easy as buying stock on the Robinhood app? So that's exactly what Evergreen is tackling. Today, they're working with companies and real estate developers that buy and sell renewable energy certificates. Don't know what those are? Well, we dig deep into that. We also dig deep into what is additionality and why should you care? Jacob, what was our chat like with these two gentlemen? Ty, it was jam-packed and super interesting. To be clear, the solar investing they're making more accessible is in solar fields, not solar panels on roofs. Solar fields is where you take open areas and you add extra solar into the grid. Don't worry, we're going to dig into all of this today. We're also going to dig into why do companies buy RECs, renewable energy certificates, in the first place? Why isn't it easy for companies to do this? And finally, what's it like having extremely tall twin suns? We're going to find out today in Climate Mayhem. Mayhem on, Ty. Mayhem on. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's so nice to have you. Ty and I were doing a ton of research. There's there's a, such a body of knowledge in what you guys are doing. And actually a lot of the, the content that you guys have made too was pretty cool. I thought we'd start off the chat with a question for you, Chris. What's it like having twin sons? What uh, What's surprisingly <laughs> awesome? 
I mean, it's just surprisingly awesome just to have my two boys. It's all we, we didn't have any more after that. So it, that's all we know, but we were very tight as a family. You know, we go to the same sports, uh, you know, we'd always go to the same soccer field or same baseball or a school event. So we were always, uh, together that, that, that kind of, uh, was special. Like we're a tight family. We love each other. And, uh, yeah, I think the twinness, I think is, is, is a cool thing to have someone else that is, yeah, I had a younger sister, but to have someone who's almost like your doppelganger, you know, just like right there, you know, is is pretty cool. I, I can't fully relate to, but they're they're identical twins, but they're also very different and very unique in their and who they are, and and uh, and we love them. And that's that's a big part of what we're trying to do here at Evergreen. We want to make this place uh, a better place for our kids, our grandkids, future generations, and you know, uh, it all ties together for us. Very cool. Yeah, and you you come from a family of Tall people. You're pretty tall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Are you yeah. six, four, six, five? Yeah. Six, 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 four. Uh, I okay. think that's, that's about where, where I'm at. And, uh, in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. In the morning. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think the what my mother's brother played basketball for Brazil. My mom's from Brazil. My dad's from, from Austria, from Europe. And so I'm actually a first generation American. They came over in their 20s. But my mother's younger brother played ball for professionally for for Brazil. Yeah, so I love to play basketball. I, I'm not good at it at all, but I just I love to get out there and play. And my two boys play ball up at RPI, and and so that's a big part of our life as well. Amazing. And uh, I imagine a lot of people ask if you can dunk. I think uh, I, I guess I saw that think, your cans, your sons can. Can you? My sons can. I think at, at my sort of peak, I was able to duck maybe a tennis ball, barely. Okay. <laughs> Ooching it over, just with my slipping fingers. it in, just yeah. slipping it in. But uh, no, never with the basketball. But my my boys can, and so I guess that next generation always takes it up a level. Yeah, I too actually am a first generation American. My both my parents are from Czech Republic. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And he shares, he's also a tall, tall guy. I also am, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. six, six. Yeah. Wow. Do you play basketball or? I tried. I tried. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't keep going. I, I ended up skateboarding, uh, oh, wow. like, like pretty quickly just transitioned into that, which surprisingly is a great sport to do when you're tall. Cause you can, you know, bigger range of motion. You can yeah. pop bigger ollies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Oh, and then I got a question for Michael now. Michael, what is bad design? I saw that you talked about this in uh, your company. It was Simplify. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my my little side hustle. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I had a design manager. So my my background is, is or much of my career was in leading design teams um, and uh, on big products and big companies. Um, and so I had a design manager once that said, you know, there's there's no rule that can't be broken in the right way. And so I think, you know, what is bad design? There's some subjectivity to it. There's some objectivity to it. I think also like what is design? You know, is it just the the look of something? Is it how it works, you know, in the function? Um, and so I, I think that is a, a big question. And, you know, I have my own kind of mental framework for what I think constitutes good design and bad design. But I, I think sometimes it's, Bad design can be anything from, um, you know, you could have like uh, the most beautiful car ever, but like, let's say, you know, they're not reliable at all and they keep breaking down. Like that's a badly designed car. You could say it's gorgeous, but it's badly designed. And likewise, you could have a car that's not much to look at that like is just absolutely a beast 
and reliability and you know always starts always works takes a, a beating and i think to some extent yeah you know we we will often come to see that as more beautiful because it works so well you know and i think of like the old yeah. all those in the 90s or the old you know and there's also some amount of like uh, nostalgia and different things too or the old you know small toyota pickup trucks or so you know it's a mix of what it looks like, how it works. Does it solve a problem? Does it really serve a need? Does it do it well? Does it kind of meet the expectations you have and exceed them in some areas? Kind of one of my other pieces of philosophy of products that tend to be seen as designed really well, really exceptional, tend to do something, some part of what it does is just way better than what's out there. Or it's solving something that just, you know, it does something that isn't really done out there at all. But, you know, I think there's also some of the core, core pieces of design is around kind of, you know, is it intuitive to use? Can I use it without a manual, without instruction? Is it kind of obvious what it does? Is it obvious how to use it? Does it fit into my life easily and naturally? Those kinds of things. And so if it's not doing those things, I think it it can be, you could easily make a, a case for it being poorly designed. And the last thing I'll say is something, sometimes something is poorly designed because it's not designed for you. And so it works well, you know, it's really well designed. It's just not, it's not meant for you. It's for someone else. You know, stairs are great design. They're horrible if you are in a wheelchair. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complex question, but it's fun to kind of riff on. Is there a product or invention that exemplifies what maybe when you explain it to other people and you're like, let me give you an example of my mental framework around this. Of what's, uh, oh yeah, I've got all, well, so one of the last things I did, I was at Google for 10 years. And one of the last things I did at Google was uh, there was a whole initiative built up around product excellence and what makes a, you know, trying to kind of improve product excellence. And so I asked some of the people running that program, have we defined product excellence? Have we defined what is excellent product? And they were like, well, no. I was like, well, can we do that? And so I got roped into basically co-leading, defining what product excellence was. And so it was kind of a part-time thing uh, and, you know, both coming up with a framework and then trying to pitch it and sell it to a bunch of people internally. And so I ended up building a framework for what is product excellence. And I think good design is part of what makes a product excellent. But to answer your question of an example, we had an example for each of, so what we ended up with was, uh, three pillars and three kind of categories under each pillar of what makes product excellence. And so we had an example for each one of those of what was a great example, what was a bad example. So one of my favorites a whole bunch of them. But Google Glasses, I think, is a great example of what I would call a bad design because it was kind of a solution in search of a problem. You know, it's kind of, it was just raw technology. What is this? It's a computer on your face. Cool. What's it do? I don't know. It's the next platform, right? The developers are going to figure it out. It's going to be wonderful. And because they didn't really latch on to a clear need that they were addressing, they didn't design around that need. And so arguably the best and worst part of Google Glass was the camera. Right, all these kinds of privacy issues and stuff. But when you talk to people that are using Google Glass, one of the things they love is I've got this camera at all times. I don't have to get it out. I don't have to touch it. I just say, take a picture. It takes it. I'm getting all these shots I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. They're really poor quality. The videos aren't great. Um, and so, again, it wasn't really designed around that. And there's all these privacy concerns and, and whatnot. So you compare that to something that you probably wouldn't obviously compare it to, which is like the GoPro camera, which is a potentially wearable camera. But they designed it around it being a great wearable camera, right? And then they also designed it for extreme athletes in the beginning, which are people that want to record their antics and other people want to see their antics. And so it's only being done in situations like someone snowboarding down a hill or like there's no one going, oh, my gosh, are you recording me? There, you know, oh, my gosh, <laughs> did you record that? Um, right. And the camera quality was great. The build quality was great. The battery life was designed for a task. And so 
it was well designed. So I think Google Glass somewhat flopped in the beginning because in my view, my opinion is it wasn't clearly designed for to solve a clear problem. And, and that's kind of the first thing I think of a, a well-designed product first and foremost is, is built around solving a real problem, an actual problem. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. That was Sorry, amazing. Great example. No, that was great. No, we loved it. We loved it. I, I uh, love the example of, are you taking a picture of me and you better have gotten that shot? Right, like that's exactly. such a great difference. I love that. Different frame. Guys, what got you interested in climate sustainability space? Uh, maybe you've said it differently. When did you start thinking about these issues? Uh, each of you worked in this space before Evergreen. I imagine you're probably thinking about this well before even those previous jobs. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick this one off. I've been in kind of the energy space here for a while. You know, I was a double eight in college. I did my PhD in electrical engineering. Ended up working at McKinsey in the tech and the energy space. So that kind of got me into energy. I'm from Texas. Texas is a big energy state. But my first really strong pivot or foray into, into climate was uh, working for Mayor Bill White in Houston. That was 2007 through 2009. He wanted to think about energy differently from uh, Texas and a Houston perspective. Houston's always been the ca oil and gas capital of the world. And we wanted to kind of make it the, you know, the, the, the clean energy capital of the world, uh, you know, less, less the clean energy there. So I took a, a position on his staff. Uh, on, and he was on the, the former mayor of Houston. Is that right? He's a more former mayor of Houston. He's, he's, he's actually a, a pretty interesting uh, background. He was uh, either a deputy undersecretary, I forgot, in the DOE under the Clinton administration. So he was pretty high up on the DOE. He uh, was mayor of Houston. He ran for governor on the on the Democrat ticket uh, against Rick Perry. He didn't make it, but you know Texas, uh, I guess, wasn't ready at the time for for that. And he's also been a successful businessman. So he's uh, you know really admired him a lot for kind of wanting to kind of change things for the better. High integrity guy. Uh, really loved working for him. But I was essentially the first chief sustainability officer for the city of Houston. So. That got me into energy policy piece. We we did a deal where you know we took Houston as you know the number one city in terms of you know greening up all its facilities, doing a, sort of a PPA with a wind farm and kind of sleeving it with a pretty complex uh, uh, transaction. But the EPA had sort of a, a top green institutions that had Whole Foods on there, Intel, and City of Houston was like right up there. I forgot exactly what number it was, but that was that was a big deal to show that leadership. From a from a city perspective, we also did some pretty innovative things on building codes, raising those bars, energy efficiency. And we had a pretty interesting weatherization programs where we would go neighborhood by neighborhood and weatherize whole blocks and kind wow. of set that up as like a manufacturing line instead of dispatching crews like on a first come first serve across the city, getting stuck in traffic. We would just run crews by neighborhood to tighten those those houses up, and we also measured the back end. So once we did those retrofits, what was the impact? How much? You know, what was was the savings on the kilowatt hours on the bill savings? Documented that. So you know, did a lot there. It was super exciting in terms of sort of connecting with the community, making a difference. And so when he ran for governor, I took a job in San Antonio with CPS Energy. CPS Energy is the largest public uh, utility on the gas and electric side. Uh, serve about 2 million customers, vertically integrated. So they've got power plants, uh, nuclear plants, coal, gas, and the wire side of the business, and then serve the retail customer. And I started as a chief sustainability officer for the for the utility there and kind of ultimately got into operation. I was, I was there as a chief operating officer over the last five years there. 
but we did a ton of stuff. Like we retired two coal plants. We stood up, you know, over 500 megawatts of solar. We did this landmark economic development deal with OCI Solar, which is a big uh, Korean conglomerate to basically structure PPAs where we were taking the offtake, but they had to stand up jobs. So they actually stood up solar manufacturing there, which actually exists to this date. And I think at some point there were, you know, close to a thousand jobs, you know, billion dollars of economic development impact. And what's, what's interesting is, you know, some of that went through some hard times as China was ramping up solar production. It was hard to, you know, build factories here domestically. They weathered through that. And now Mission Solar, which is the factory that's in San Antonio building solar, is the bell of the ball in terms of, you know, you want to have domestic contact with this new climate legislation bill. So, so super exciting time for me in terms of being on that energy transition. What I found is like, we have to go even faster and incumbents are going to play a role in that. But, you know, being kind of in, on the more disruptive side, on the venture side, I feel is like where I want to try to make a difference. And so I teamed up with Pioneer Square Labs here. I know we'll get into a little bit more of the, the investment and how Evergreen all started, but teamed up with uh, Michael here as co-founder of Evergreen. We wanted to, you know, build a, a great company on climate, uh, for profit, and you know, from a capitalistic perspective. And but, but mo- mostly important is is to have a have an impact on climate. So, and we'll get into this a little bit more down the road. I think is like I was really disheartened. Like, will we be able to get to even twenty thirty goals of you know getting to a forty percent reduction in greenhouse gases? It just didn't feel like it. Now with this climate legislation that's played through feels like we've got some real momentum, real wind in the sails. You know, Evergreen just at the is at the tip of the spear in terms of, you know, making this happen. So we're super excited. Couldn't be in a better place, better team, just trying to accelerate the energy transition. No kidding. I was thinking exactly that too after the bill was passed. I, I, I thought about you guys uh, and more companies, I don't know, feeling like they need to do this and really just even hopefully regulation to make them do this. And then, Michael, what about you? What got you interested in the climate sustainability space? Where did it start? Yeah, I would say as, as far as where it started, you know, I think there were two events that were were kind of big events, and and I feel like they're kind of boring, or I feel like they're they're common events. I think one is seeing Al Gore's and Inconvenient Truth back in like '06. I think that kind of really put it on my radar in a bigger way that wasn't on it until that time. I think that you know couple of years later, a year or two later, Obama gets elected and, and there's kind of this sense of like, oh, okay, whew, I can breathe a sigh of relief. This is going to get, you know, addressed. And then, and then kind of seeing it not really get addressed and kind of, so there's kind of this slow, like, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. Okay. It's, it's going to be fine. Oh my gosh, it's actually not really going to get addressed. And so this slowly ticking up of urgency where it's like, okay, that was like a top three issue. Now it's a top two issue. Now it's by far my number one issue. And I would say it was my number one issue by the time uh, the 2016 election kind of rolled around. And, you know, I think with with Trump's position on on climate change, you know, at least his public position is he doesn't really even think it's real. You know, that was that kind of bumped things up a whole nother level. So at that time, I was at uh, Facebook within 24 hours of him getting elected. I had become I, I basically made a commitment to become you know, to myself to be a tri vegetarian for 100 days and figure out how to switch my career into working directly on climate, uh, among a couple other small things. So I ended up sticking with um, with both. I'm still been veg- vegetarian. Wow. I don't even know what my last wow. uh, it's not easy. meal was of meat. 
my wife is vegetarian, so I, I'm lucky. Oh, there you go. Um, it's it's pretty yeah. easy for me. Um, it, it wasn't a big sacrifice. I was born and raised a Texan, so I thought it would be a bigger sacrifice. <laughs> um, but it's been, it was, you know, it was already easy and it was easier than I expected it to be. Um, and then, yeah, and then I switched. I eventually left uh, Facebook and I wasn't really sure. I'm not good at figuring out what's next while I'm in the current thing. So, yeah, I left Facebook to go embark on my journey of figuring out. And that was about four and a half years ago of what is it to work on climate and where can I do that and, and kind of learn by doing. And that's when you started working at Nori shortly. After yeah, I ended up, I tried a couple of small things briefly, but I landed at Nori where I ran product and eventually ran, you know, supply and quantification and verification uh, in one way or another, you know, large, a lot of that stuff being done by partners externally, but trying to kind of run, trying to align things and launch their market, get their first form farmer. Um, they, they build a carbon removal marketplace around uh, incentivizing regenerative agriculture practices so enrolling our first you know, farmers, getting their, all of their data, being able to quantify the impacts based on their changes, um, verify that with an external party, uh, and then build a marketplace that issues credits um, and sells them and then sell those credits. That was a big lift. That was there for yeah. two years. Um, and then I did some consulting for another year and a half or so uh, around some other players in the space. And then uh, I decided I didn't want to work on nature-based solutions anymore for a whole host of reasons, wanted to try my hand at energy and got, oh. I've known the people behind Pioneer Square Labs since uh, I actually almost joined Pioneer Square Labs when they got started. So I've kept in touch with Greg over the years and he knew I was focused on climate and said, Hey, uh, you should talk to this guy, Chris, he's excited about space too. And so mm-hmm. our powers combined. Um, and then we've you know built up a great team. Uh, we've kind of been well, at it. Let's dig in there. Cause that's a great, that's a great segue. You guys have such a deep, background in in this space i think there's a lot to even learn here about what evergreen does for the average consumer but let's start there i mean you guys obviously had this like great connector here in the northwest which is uh pioneer square labs talk us through some of those uh you know early ideas um and and how evergreen kind of came around and came came about yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off again. You know, Pioneer Square Labs, with Greg's leadership, wanted to do something kind of in this space. I think it was a combination of sort of energy and sort of fractionalization, like fractionalizing you know, into different markets or other analogies that they were trying to play off of. They were looking at energy broadly, even sort of including things like RNG. Renewable natural gas. Renewable natural gas. And, uh, you know, when I kind of connected with Greg... You know, we talked about like, you know, solar is kind of, it is such an interesting kind of technology. And, you know, I'm a utility guy. It correlates so well, at least in the South and Texas, like when it's hot and ACs are, are uh, going, you know, f- full load, you know, solar is producing, you know, so it correlates really well with demand. You know, it is fairly predictable. Wind is a lot less predictable to, to forecast. Solar, you know, again, if it's if it's uh, going to be a high pressure system over the state of Texas, you know, solar is going to be shining and, and and producing. And so, for a variety of different reasons, it feels like a really good technology and piece of of solving this uh, the, this energy puzzle. So we talked about like how do we stand up more solar? How do we get consumers involved? Because part of this thing was fractionalizing, you know, letting everyone anyone bring uh, capital or investments into. Uh, into renewable projects, really opening it up beyond kind of the, you know, the big banks and Wall Street and just democratizing, you know, the whole area of renewables. And so it was kind of a B2C play when we first kind of got out of the gate. 
And I think the challenge we saw, we found there is like, it is pretty complicated. There's a lot of sort of complex bespoke project, you know, structuring and financing uh, pieces of it. There's a lot of tax implications. So if you invest a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars into a solar system, I mean, our, our tagline was, you know, buy a solar panel and get a return on it and do, you know, wow. you know, get a return and, and do good by the earth. So it, it had a lot of good elements to it. But it really kind of bogged down in terms of a lot of the complexity that uh, still needs to be sorted out in solar and, you know, which, you know, we, everyone's dealing with here. And so, you know, you, you invest a couple hundred dollars into a panel and then you got to have to deal with a K-1 with your tax returns next year. It's just, it's just, it's just got complicated. And, you know, we, there are companies that are in this space right now and we could have made a business out of it, but we really wanted to have broad impact, you know, have, have a much bigger play on the climate side. And so we did a pivot about uh, in sort of the April timeframe, about three or four months into it, to make it more of a B2B play. So instead of working with end consumers, let's work with companies. Companies have dollars. You know, their success has been a big part of the carbon footprint that we have today. They want to be more sustainable. There's SEC is kind of going down this path uh, in terms of like, is climate a liability for these companies? How are they mitigating that? So now there's carbon disclosure rules. So there's just, there's a nice kind of a trend around corporates setting climate goals, carbon uh, uh, goals, scope two emissions, one, two, and three. And now not, you know, how do, how do they actually achieve those goals? And so that was a space that we kind of pivoted into. So we are working with those companies, with companies to actually take their goals and achieve them through real, uh, projects and standing up, you know, new solar. And we found it a much more scalable, uh, faster way to stand up a lot more solar, which is kind of what we're all about. Solar plus storage. Storage is kind of got kind of playing in for us as well. So that's kind of where we're at. And that's that was kind of the uh, that was my version of the story. I don't know, Michael probably he's got uh, his perspective, but yeah, it's, well, that, it's, I mean that's super helpful. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'll have a, just a tiny bit of color. What's interesting is like I actually I think I talked to Greg about the the fractional investment in renewable natural gas before y'all got connected mm. and i basically uh, i basically was like yeah i think this is a <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't have anything to do with it i don't think this is interesting wow. um, yeah and greg was like okay that's interesting thanks for the feedback and then he pinged me a couple months later saying hey you know we've got this guy chris and like he's convinced us you know he said the same thing as you let's go after solar um are you interested in it? so it was like yeah um, let's let's talk so good yeah so you talked a little bit about the pressure for or the reasons why companies are starting to look at this. I wanted to also highlight the problem, though, that it feels like you guys are specifically going after in the way that you're you're going after this with the, I mean, without jumping ahead too far, but the smaller, being able to buy into the smaller chunks of that. Why don't you start to tee up this idea of like, where is the industry today? What would companies have to do today? And how are you guys solving, making a different solution for them? Yeah, I mean the the fastest way to do this is is to put on-site solar on your rooftop. I mean, and put some storage on there, and and you know have those electrons flow directly into your machines, your equipment, your AC system, your heaters. But every roof is different. You may not have enough rooftop space. There's you know complexity. These are twenty-year, twenty-five-year assets. So you got to put that on a building. You own it's, your building. You own the building. You lease the building. So it just it gets super complicated. And so what. What we've come up with and what we are pitching is there's a better way of doing this. So instead of standing up that solar on your rooftop, we can stand it up much more cost effectively in a field that is connected to a grid strategically in a grid you know that really can take that energy. And we can do it in a grid that's dirty. 
So, you know, you might be in Seattle and you might want to kind of, but you know, you're 90 plus percent hydro here. So if you want to have a climate impact, if you want to have a more effective, efficient way of putting up that solar at scale, we can do that. We basically virtualize the concept of on-site solar through our solar field. So we've got a pretty compelling pitch here. A lot of big tech does this, and Michael knows this probably better than I, you know, that Google's Apple, you know, they set up these virtual power purchase agreements to, you know, to enable remote solar. They're now doing it 24 seven. So it matches its load. So they've done that, but it's been, you know, Michael and stats, you know, just a couple hundred companies are actually doing that. There, there are thousands of other companies that would like to do the same thing Google and Apple and Microsoft are doing, but they don't have the scale. We can't. We can't customize it. And so that's what Evergreen's all about with our platform to actually make that accessible to all of the companies out there, not just big tech. I think we're really trying to broaden the access, access, right? I think it's still just as we were trying to democratize investment in solar. We're now trying to kind of democratize or, or broaden access to impactful products um, for companies that want to upgrading and really accelerate, make sure that their money is going to accelerating the transition, Mm -hmm. but they're adding kind of more wood to the fire. And just to talk about that scale difference, like what I was reading on your website was versus buying 25, I think, milliwatt hours, people are able to buy five milliwatt hours. Companies are able to buy that. Yeah. Yeah. How's the best way to say that? So uh, you can get down to uh, 1,000 megawatt hours is kind of our minimum. So uh, one megawatt hour is about what a a big house would use in a month. So Mm -hmm. it's still a sizable company, right? We're not down to where, you know, every company can participate, but I think it's, it's much, much broader than the few hundred that are playing right now, where the minimum you know, these contracts are, they're long, they tend to be 50, over 15 years long. Uh, they're very large. They tend to be for well over 250,000 megawatt hours. Uh, so we are one 250th of that size as a minimum. Ours are at least, you know, our uh, minimum five years instead of 15 years on ours. And they're risky and complex, right? They're, they're, the big players will spend months up to a year negotiating each of these contracts with each developer. And so we're trying to kind of standardize that and, and figure out if there's are and find ways. And we have found ways to take out the risk of these for, again, broader participation. So, again, finding the problems to address and then addressing those problems so that companies can participate and have the impact that they want to have. And then report on that impact and quantify it so they can be confident of it and kind of report back to their stakeholders, their investors, their customers, their employees, et cetera. And just kind of be really intentional and, and go really deep on that. I think that's one important thing uh, just to, to add on to under Michael's leadership is we not only measure the megawatt hours, but we also kind of with our partner, Watt Time, translate that into a carbon impact. It's like how much carbon are you reducing with your solar system or your storage system? That is defined by a moment in time and location. So we measure that real time for our, our customers. So it, it allows our customers to kind of translate energy into carbon in a very real and meaningful way. Yeah. And I think that's a powerful marketing message for them, right? They're putting that out Mm -hmm. to shareholders, customers, et cetera, right? I think it lets you be a more informed buyer. I think that there's a lot of inside baseball around carbon accounting and what's, you know, how is this stuff supposed to work? How should it work? And so like we could go incredibly deep on this stuff and I don't Mm -hmm. advise us to. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I would just say we're not trying to sell this on the terms of the tons of CO2. I think that the way scope two works, and I think y'all will get a little bit into this, like what is scope two emissions? But really that is, you know, the class of your emissions that comes from the energy you use. 
from the electricity yep. use, sorry, not energy, electricity. So, you know, when you're trying to address your electricity, there's there's some, you know, there's not a hundred percent agreement about the what is the you know kind of best way to do that or what's the right way to do that. Our perspective is going back to Chris's the point he made is you were deciding, you were looking at putting solar on site, right? And you what do you you couldn't do that for whatever reason. You couldn't afford it, you don't have the enough surface area, you don't own the building. For whatever reason, that didn't make sense for you. You're doing this instead. We want it to be a good replacement in that you are putting solar into the world that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, for companies setting out these goals, we think that those, that's kind of your, your top-notch companies. And we think there's a lot of companies that want to have that impact and it's just not accessible to them. Not, not um, accessible, so yeah. You brought this up a couple of different ways and you guys talk about it on your website as additionality, which I, yeah. which I dig. And I think you also talk about it in a different way of talking about your distributed network of, of solar fields. So you both brought that up in different ways. Let's blow that out a little bit more. What do you mean by additionality? And then, you know, how are you doing that with this distributed network of solar fields? Yeah. So additionality is one of my favorite climate terms, especially, so additionality is really a term that has to do with, you know, carbon markets historically. That's really what's come out of like carbon offsets, carbon removals. And so the idea is if you are spending money to avoid emissions, which I, our projects are more or less, you know, our position is that they're avoiding emissions. I wouldn't say they're reducing emissions and technical technicality, but you're either avoiding emissions. The question is, would those emissions have been avoided or reduced uh, in, in terms of an offset, if not for that offset, right? So if a company is saying, hey, I'm polluting, right? I'm putting, you know, a thousand tons of CO2 up in the air, but then I'm turning around and paying for this action over here, which is theoretically avoiding a thousand tons of CO2 going up into the air. Was it truly avoided because of what I did? Or am I just taking credit for something that was already going to happen, in which case, spend your money somewhere else. You needed to actually be a net reduction, not you just trying to take credit because someone else didn't realize they had something of, of worth. So that principle of the project, you know, the thing that you're paying for wouldn't have happened if not for you contributing money to it. We're applying that principle to scope two, which historically has not been applied. And I think that that is a mistake. I mean, I think partly because, you know, it hasn't been uh, cracked open how to how to apply it uh, at scale. So when you're applying to scope two, it's to say, if you're spending money to make renewables happen, and you're doing that instead of putting you know, renewables on your roof or your facilities or whatever, we want to make sure the projects that your money is going toward, towards are, are new, uh, that no one else is taking credit for them, and that they wouldn't have happened if not for your involvement, your demand, your contribution, um, et cetera. There's other layers of additionality, um, and I'll, I'll avoid it. So I, I would say this is kind of the financial additionality, you know, test is, is a, a big part of kind of what, the way we look at it. But there are other aspects that go into kind of, you know, quantifying the impact and really thinking about, you know, so another good example is, you know, the state doesn't have a renewable portfolio standard, uh, which is an RPS. That's what uh, states tend to have. Hey, we have this goal for this percentage of renewables. So there are other layers of other factors that could contribute to renewables happening, even if the finances don't work, um, just because it's a new project, just because your money put it over the line, it might be that the law requires that project get built and therefore it was going to get built anyway. So it's a complex, sometimes subjective thing. And I would say you can never be 100% sure. But I think what we can do is be you know, really intentional, really thorough and really transparent about how we're trying to test and do our best to ensure that 
your money is truly making something happen in the world that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And only then are we building more than we otherwise would have. And only then are we actually accelerating the transition to renewables. So that's awesome. And I appreciate that. And I love this idea of you're, you're kind of, I've had this question in my brain for years now of what is carbon offsets? <laughs> you know, just as a layman, just like, what do you mean by carbon offsets? Does that actually mean anything? Like you're paying money into this like ephemeral unit of value. I don't really know what that actually did. I will say just learning a little bit about that concept of additionality has helped me, you know, kind of peel back a little bit of this onion. I know there's a lot more to it and you guys could probably go on it. I also connected it on your website and what you were talking about a minute ago, Chris, was this idea of this, these distributed network of smaller solar fields. I thought this was a really interesting concept and I don't think it's always, but it feels like sometimes this additionality is one of these new potential distributed solar fields, smaller distributed solar fields. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think I think we're kind of on to something super interesting and we're getting more and more interested, especially with this climate legislation that's that's played through is big utility scale projects. These are billion dollar, you know, projects that take three to five years. They they tie up thousands of acres of land. There's a lot of Wall Street money that kind of goes into that to 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 stand those those projects up. And the Googles and the Microsofts kind of, you know, they're the ones kind of off taking, you know, the the PPAs or you may have a utility off taking or a city, uh, uh, you know, so sort of it's 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 kind of the the really big, big uh, deals. On the other end of the spectrum, you got rooftop for, you know, residential homes and businesses. And, you know, those are very personal, like, you know, that that powers that home, that business that, you know, it's a big deal. And and. but the challenge is it doesn't scale as much. You have to do 2,000 homes to, you know, 1,000 homes to get to start to kind of enter the utility scale world. And so what we have is sort of a Goldilocks project. We got something in the middle of that. So instead of a 100 kW or a 100 megawatt system, we have a 10 megawatt system. So it's kind of in the middle of those two. And we think it's pretty innovative because you can build them a lot faster. You can size them up to companies that are smaller than Google's and the Microsoft's. You can also locate on the on the distribution side of the of the grid, so you don't have to do it on the transmission transmission infrastructure. These are these big lattices that you see crossing the country that are you know operating at three hundred fifty thousand volts, and so you can do these at at thirteen uh, kV or, or thirty five kV thirty five thousand volts, and it's a lot easier to connect into those projects. So the interconnection process is easier. And a lot of you know, these are kind of considered community solar projects. So these are sort of of that size and, and ilk. I think what we have done is we've got a way to basically stand these up without having to go through a PPA or an RFP process with the utility, which takes time and, and brings complexity to the equation. So what we're doing is we are locating those projects on the low voltage sides of a substation. The substation is the is the device that basically steps down the voltage from transmission level infrastructure to distribution, which is the poles and wires that serve your your homes and businesses in a city. And so that is a pretty strategic part of the grid because that's the that's where you take this massive sea of electrons and you start to feed it into circuits that that uh that you know supply power to homes and businesses. And by injecting right on the on the low voltage side where it touches the distribution system, there's still enough electricity to go into circuits so that if there's any intermittency from the renewal project, it doesn't get felt as much as if you have a solar at the end of that circuit or even on a rooftop uh, per se. So it's a much better way to inject intermittent power 
into a system and to do it at scale. So 10 megawatts, that's that's the equivalent of, you know, I think roughly about 2000 homes that, that that can power. So what we do is we can, as long as we got land near a substation, we can lock up that land. We can build a solar farm. We can do the interconnection. And then we can basically wheel that power to a wholesale market and settle it financially. And from Michael's you know, perspective, from the additionality perspective, there's not another claim of those electrons. That, that, those electrons are basically uh, being settled in a wholesale market. And the environmental attributes of that project are, can be fully supported by our off-takers. So when a customer steps up and signs up for one of those solar farms, it's their solar farm. They have made that solar farm happen. And it's, 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 it's pretty pure it's from a that standpoint. 100% net new. It's, 100% it's net built, new. Yeah, well, it's it's not just that it's new. It's it's a cleaner call in that it's not someone else isn't benefiting from it. Someone it. else didn't order it, right? So yeah. if I, you know, if someone else is building solar on their business and they don't care about the recs, but they're benefiting from cheaper energy prices over time, you know, did you really make that project happen, or would it have happened anyways? You know, how do you quantify that? How you test for that is tricky, but that's kind of what we're getting at: is we avoid that at least that part of it. By not building on, you know, behind a meter, we're building where there's no other reason to have built other than our customers want it built. Yeah. The only other thing I'd add all that, tie is if you put solar storage on there as well, which, we, you know, we've got at our plants as well, you know, these become the power plants of the future. You know, as as the cities, you know, fossil plants shut down, whether sure. they're at the edge or sure. remote, they're going to need power. They're going to need power locally. And, and we got to have more than just rooftop systems. And so these are going to be major power generation activities. And what we're trying to do, and this is, you know, under Ben Dixon's leadership, our chief legal officer, we're trying to standardize that. So it's Goldilocks, it's cookie cutter, it's standard contracts. And what we want to do is be able to stamp that out. Here's the playbook. There's, you know, 400 you know, substations in the city. You know, let's stand these up across the city. Let's stand them up across the nation. And let's make let's make this as cookie cutter and standardized as just going into a McDonald's and you know buying a Big Mac. Probably yeah. a terrible analogy, but you know, <laughs> it's like yeah, but but you get the drift. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor? And subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now. It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon. 